If we please turn your Bibles to the book of Proverbs, and we're going to be looking at Proverbs chapter 12, verse 10. And last week, as I mentioned, Lynn and I were at this veterinary conference in Nashville as I was going through chapter 12, because that was the chapter that I was going to be preaching on this week. I was looking through, and verse 10 jumped out at me. I said, this is the one that I have to, to preach on. So, Proverbs chapter 12, verse 10. <clears throat> Whoever is righteous has regard for the life of his beast, but the mercy of the wicked is cruel. Let's pray. Lord, we do thank you for the Proverbs. We thank you for the wisdom that is found in the Proverbs. And Lord, we pray that you help us to unpack that wisdom. We know that on our own, we do not have the ability to understand your word, and, and we do not have the ability to apply your word. We need your spirit to do it. I need your spirit to speak through me. So Lord, I pray that you will be with us this evening. You will use this short proverb to grow us and, and to help us to understand the relationship that we have as, as uh, human beings with nature and with animals, and, and Lord, to put it in the right perspective, because there's so many ways we can error in this, uh, and we have erred uh, on this topic. So Lord, we pray that you will guide us. I pray you will give me the words to speak. I will speak only your truth, and we pray above all that you are glorified this evening. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the Lord does have a sense of humor, doesn't he? He has a sense of humor, because those of you who know me, I'm not really an animal lover. I'm not someone who has a strong bond with animals. And who should I happen to marry? <laughs> a veterinarian? A, a, a woman who has been born, literally, with animals, having animals. I, I see a picture. There's a picture of Lynn. She was a, an infant, maybe even a newborn. And she's in, in, in her bassinet is an animal, is a, is a dog that she's uh, cuddling up with. So you see that, she, and she's actively been involved in training dogs and showing dogs since she was six years old. And you know, we have dogs and cats and horses. And Jack often asks me, he says, which one do you like better, the horses or the dogs or the cats? And my response, Jack, remember my response that I say? I said that I like cats better than horses, and I like dogs better than cats, and I don't like dogs. So that is kind of kind of sums up my, uh, my relationship with animals. And of the, of, the, of the five animals that we have living in our house, I affectionately refer to them as wretched, useless, mangy, disgusting, and good for nothing. And, these, and they, they know those names. They get all excited because when I start calling them wretched, useless, mangy, disgusting, good for nothing, they think I'm going to feed them because that's what I say to them every time. And I always tell them we feed them more than they deserve, but I wind up feeding them anyway. So that's, I, that's kind of my disclaimer before I even start this sermon to see the person who's, who's preaching to you about, uh, about uh, animals. But this relationship that we as humans have with animals, whether animals in general or wildlife or our pets, it's complicated. And, and there's strong emotions involved with when it comes to our pets, both for Christians and non-Christians. And that, I think, affects our, our view of the subject, right? We, we have uh, animal rights. We have uh, what is the right way of treating animals. These are, these are questions that frequently come up. Well, I think... Myself, not having any natural affection for animals, but having spent nearly 37 years with Lynn, going to dog shows, helping caring for dogs, I think this is giving me a, a unique perspective on this relationship between humans and animals. And I remember when we were living back in Blacksburg, I remember Lynn and I being disappointed by some of our Christian friends. People we know were, were, were strong Christians. They had a robust, doctrinally sound faith. But we were disappointed by really the way they took care of their animals, or I should say the lack of care 
they gave to their pets. And Lynn has told me that some of the worst pet owners that she's treated happen to be Christians, that she sees as a veterinarian, are Christians. And really, this is, this is sad. And it's not that they're abusive, but for the most part, they're neglectful of their animals. They see their pets not as part of the family, but really as disposable. Something If they become uh, expensive or, or inconvenient, you can get rid of them. And conversely, some of the best pet owners are secular progressives who, who rarely, if ever, stepped inside of a church and who would probably strongly oppose almost everything that the Bible says, but they are some of the best pet owners. In fact, there are groups, when, when we were at this conference, I, I learned of, of a group that would come down here to the Bible Belt, to the shelters that are overpopulated here, and uh, basically take these animals that are destined to be euthanized and bring them up to New England, up to the progressives who will adopt them. And I learned that they have no overpopulation problem in, in places like New England. So it's, it's interesting. Now, there, there are non-biblical worldviews, I think, that exploit this strong feelings that we have toward animals. And I think this could, could lead us astray and, and, and sadly leads many of us into a, a neo-pagan way of thinking about our animals, thinking about nature, thinking about the, the environment. We see this in, in the religions of the Native Americans that, that really worship the creation, worship uh, nature and animals. They're sacred. You know, we're, 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 we are one with nature. We are one with the animals. We have the same spirit. You'll see this in some of these Native spiritualities. And I think this is attractive to some people where animals are sacred or, or the, the earth is sacred. I remember seeing one bumper sticker. I always got annoyed at this bumper sticker, but this bumper sticker says, the earth doesn't belong to us, we belong to the earth. And this is that same type of thinking. And we see this, this worldview and, and, and that very horrible movie that Nathan wasn't allowed to watch when he was a child, The Lion King. If I remember The Lion King, it had this, uh, this view of the, the great circle of life, how we're all connected in this circle of life, this is, this is paganism. I understand why Nathan wasn't allowed to see it. It was promoting paganism. And this ideology is best seen in the group People for the Ethical Treatment for Animals. Have you ever heard of that group, PETA? Well, I, I went and looked at their, their website before this. And right, the first thing that comes up is end speciesism. You know what speciesism? Basically, it, it says it's a natural tra trajectory from, from racism and, and sexism and homophobia and all the other problems we have with, with people towards animals. It's basically saying we should treat animals like we treat people. And it says, you know, you wouldn't eat a fellow person. You wouldn't wear the skins of a person. You wouldn't experiment on the person. So they say that we shouldn't do this for animals as well. And I think we, we feel this, this tension with respect to animal rights. I mean, I, I don't even like animals, but I, I do somehow feel an attraction to some of these pagan philosophies that, that place a higher view on the animals and on the environment than we see done by some, some Christians. But as believers, we don't look to PETA. We don't look to anti-biblical worldviews. We don't even look at the actions of individual Christians to determine our ethics. We must look to Scripture. But before I look at this specific verse from Proverbs, I want to just give a little biblical background on this subject of our relationship with animals. So where is the, the best place to look for God's original plan for the, for the creation? It's the pre-fall garden. So this is before sin has come in, so we see how God has, has, uh, has planned for, for our interaction with the creation. So if you would, turn back in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 2. We're going to look at verses 19 and 20. Genesis 2, 
19 and 20. So this is the pre-fall. This is before sin has entered into the world. So this is showing us God's original plan. So Genesis 2, chapter 19 and 20. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the livestock and to the birds of the heaven and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. Well, in these two verses, I, I think we can find a robust theology about this relationship between, peoples, uh, between people and animals. I think these, these verses will give us three principles that we could use to guide us. So the first principle that we see here is that the Lord God, Yahweh, is what we see here, formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens out of the ground. They were created by God. They are God's handiwork. They belong to him. There's a divine dignity that they possess because of the fact that they are created by God. And notice that it says the animals are formed from the ground. This is, if you remember, this is the same way God formed Adam, out of the dust of the ground. So in one sense, humans and animals are made out of the same material stuff. And this can be confirmed by, by our modern science that sees animals and humans are all made out of the same proteins and, and amino acids and compounds. Also, we need to understand that there's something different about the way the Lord forms something than the way we form. So say we were going to take all the, we could take all the compounds, all the atoms that are found in, say, a cat. We took we mixed them all together in a bucket and stirred them together. We're not going to have a cat. We're just going to have a mixture of animals. But when the Lord put them together, the Lord was able to, to instill life, life, to create physical life into these organisms, into every single animal. And because of this, because of this fact, all life is sacred because it has something that only God can impart. Only God can impart life, and they belong to God. So in that sense, all animals have, have a dignity, have a worth that comes from God. So that's the first principle. The second principle we see from this Genesis 2 package, uh, passage comes in verse 20, where we see the man is charged to name the animals. So by naming what basically God is doing, he's delegating authority to the man over the animals. See, in Scripture, naming denotes authority. We even see this in when we have our own children. Parents name their children. And what this does is this denotes the parents' authority over the children. Well, Adam's naming of the animals here denotes his authority over the animals. And this is not ownership. We need to be clear. It's not ownership over the animals or over the creation. But what this represents is a, a stewardship delegated by God over the creation. God has given this authority to us over the creation. And we see this explicitly stated in Genesis chapter 1, uh, verse 26. And, and uh, yeah, 26, if you take a look at that verse, just kind of look, look a chapter back in your Bibles. Uh, God said in Genesis 1, chapter 26, then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So we see here that, that God is, that, that we are given dominion over these animals. And it's not to do with what we please, but rather it is, is to manage and to steward this creation as God directs us. We are to steward the creation for God's glory. 
We are not to exploit the creation for our own selfish purposes. And we need to remember that as, as stewards, we are going to be held accountable for the way we treat all of God's creatures, how we manage his creation. We will answer to God for the way we treat his, cre- his creation. So that's the second principle. The third principle we see in this Genesis 2 passage is found in the last sentence of verse 20, which says, but for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. And here what we see is a fundamental difference. There's a fundamental difference between man, between human beings, and between the animal kingdom. Yes, there is a similarity. Yes, we are both physical, both made out of the same physical stuff. But there's a fundamental difference here. And the error that folks like PETA and and these animal rights activists see is that they see us that we're fundamentally the same. They have a a Darwinistic worldview that basically says human beings and animals are are the same thing, just a a different form of the same animals. Now, on on the physical level, we are the same. Both are formed by God, both formed out of the dust of the ground, but both made out of the same elements and compounds. So, so physical, physically, we are related to the animals. But man is not simply a, a physical being. Genesis 2-7, which records God's creation of man, and it's, it's similar and it's different than the creation of animals. So again, if you just take a look back at Genesis 2-7, it says, Then the Lord God, Yahweh, formed the man of the dust of the ground, so that's similar, and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. This is different. And it says, and the man became a living creature. So there's no mention in Genesis 2.19 that God breathed his life into the animals. And you may say, well, you might object and say, but but animals are are obviously living creatures. But I don't think that's what it means when it says the Lord breathed life into the nostrils. I don't think he's talking about imparting physical life. I think it's different. I, I believe that the life that's breathed into the nostrils is not physical life, but actually spiritual life. So God is imparting spiritual life to the man and to the man only. Again, to understand this difference, let's look back at the creation of man as recorded in Genesis 1.26. Then the God said, let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let him have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heaven and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And verse 27 says, So God created man in his image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So it's mankind, not animals, that are made in the image of God. And we are like the animals in that we have a physical life, but we, being made in God's image, like God, like the angels, we also have spiritual life. And among the animals, there was no helper suitable for Adam, because Adam alone was this only spiritual and material being in the universe. And this indicates a fundamental difference between human beings and animals. We have to be careful not to miss this point. If we miss this point, we make the same mistakes that a lot of the pagan religions make, what what PETA makes. Let me just summarize these three principles. One, God alone creates and owns all the animals, and they have dignity and worth based on this fact. That's one. Two, God delegates to man dominion over the creation and over the animals for God's purpose and for his glory. And man is accountable to God in the way he exercises the stewardship. And three, animals and man are fundamentally different. Animals are physical beings where man is both a physical and a spiritual being. So now we've got that. that that's the, the grid work that we're going to look at this proverb. So now let's look at Proverbs 12.10. I'm just going to look at the first half of this. 
It says, whoever is righteous has regard for the life of his beast. So I want to ask two questions looking at this verse. First, what does it mean to be righteous? And second, what does it mean to have regard for the life of his beast? So let's look at what does it mean to be righteous? Well, this is not talking about the righteousness of salvation. This is not talking about the righteousness that is found in Christ alone. It's not talking about that sinless perfection that is, that is required for us to have peace and fellowship with God in order to even approach God. See, this type of righteousness is found in Christ alone. Christ is the only person who has this type of righteousness. And then this righteousness is imputed to us. It is credited to us solely on the basis of faith. Faith in the person and work of Jesus Christ alone. This, we've talked about many times, this is justification. So a person is made righteous in God's sight by have, not by having regard for the, for the life of his being, if this, of his beast. If this was the case, an atheist PETA member would, uh, would be saved and a neglectful uh, pet-owning Christian would be lost. So that's not what it's talking about. The righteousness is spoken of in Proverbs 12.10 is not this absolute righteousness required by God, accomplished by Christ, and imputed by the Holy Spirit, and, and received by us by faith. This is not the absolute righteousness of justification. Rather, what we see here is the relative righteousness of sanctification. So not the righteousness of justification, but the relative righteousness of sanctification. So when a sinner is justified by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, he's declared righteous. He's declared not guilty in God's sight. But as we all know, in actuality, when we are declared not guilty, there's still much sin in this justified and redeemed sinner. There's still much sin in us. So sanctification is the process, basically, of becoming what we have been declared. Where justification is this one-time act of being declared righteous, being declared not guilty in God's sight. Sanctification is the lifelong process of becoming more and more righteous in actuality. It's becoming more and more like Christ. So it is this righteousness, it's the righteousness of sanctification that this verse in Proverbs is speaking about. So what does it mean? Is this, is this verse, or I should say, what this means is that this verse can be used as a diagnostic tool, a measure of our growth and sanctification. So for the Christian who has received and is resting upon Jesus Christ alone, he is justified. He will never face the wrath of God, and, and he will never face judgment. But if he's neglectful of his beast, it's a sign that he needs sanctification in this area. It's, it's a diagnostic. You look at the way you treat these animals, and this is, is, a, is a diagnostic tool of needing further sanctification. And this neglect is sinful. It doesn't please God. It fails to glorify God. It should be repented of just as any other sin. But now I want to look at the second part of this verse. What does it mean to have regard for the life of his beast? Does this mean that we pamper our pets? Does it mean that we have to be a vegan and, and not wear or animal skins or, or experiment on animals? Does it, does it mean we have to adopt and, and uh, rescue every homeless animal? I, mean, I remember I knew when we were in Blacksburg, we knew this couple... Uh, they were not Christian, but they rescued special needs animals. I remember they had diabetic cats and, and, and um, blind dogs and animals that were missing limbs, and they had multiple of them. Is this what it means? Is this what we need to do? Are these unbelievers, are they more sanctified, at least in this area, than Christians who neglect their animals? 
And the answer is no, they're not. So there may be a physical, there may be even an outward benefit of this type of work, but there's no spiritual benefit. There's no, this work has no value in, in the eyes of God for the person who does not belong to God. You see, the, the atheist who, who provides great care, at least from a, a human perspective for his animals, he receives no credit from God for this, although he would face greater judgments if he neglected his animal, if he was abuseful to his animals. See, a person who is not justified cannot be sanctified. A person who is not justified cannot be sanctified. A person who is not justified cannot please God. And this is because even when they outwardly obey God's law, they're, not, they're still in bondage to sin. They are unable to not sin. They're unable to do anything that pleases God. So the outwardly good that they do, <clears throat> they're doing it for the wrong motives. They're doing it not to glorify God, but to glorify themselves. So having regard for the life of his animal doesn't mean that the person pampers or rescues or, or is a vegan. It simply means he recognizes that the animal, the animal as a living creature, created and fashioned by Almighty God, has an inherent dignity that originates from God. Regardless of what you feel, regardless of whether you like the animals or not, they have an inherent dignity that originates from God. And they are not to be abused. They are not to be treated as inanimate objects to fulfill our selfish purposes. They belong to God. They are to be used to bring God glory. And we will be held accountable to God for the way we treat his creation. But does this mean that we cannot take the life of an animal as we see fit? No. God has given man authority, dominion over the life of animals. He has given us the, the ability, he has given us animals to eat his food. That is okay. He has given us authority to decide when animals that are in our charge, when they will die, whether we will euthanize them. We are the ones who can make that decision for the animals. We don't have that authority for people. We can't decide that, you know, your grandma's not doing too good. We want, we want to euthanize. No, we do not have that authority over people. God himself has that authority over when the end the life of a human. So having regard for an animal, uh, for the life of his animal, does not mean blurring the distinction between animals and humans. See, this is a wicked offense. When, when, we, when we put animals and humans on the same level, we are... We are having a wicked offense against the image of God that resides in all humans. But there's another important aspect that we see from this verse. And here I want to read the entire verse again. He says, Whoever is righteous has regard for the life of his beast, but the mercy of the wicked is cruel. See, this delegated authority that God has given us over animals, accountable to him, constrained by his character, what it does is it gives us insight into God's relationship with us. Our relationship with our animals gives us insight into God's relationship with us. It's an analogy. It's a parable. A parable of God's relationship with us. And through our stewardship over animals, we are giving a unique glimpse from God's perspective of his relationship with us. And this is the whole premise behind our parable of the pooch that Lynn and I have been presenting now for nearly 20 years. In the parable of the pooch, what we do is we look at the dogs and the dog's reaction to us and we see how we are to react or how we should react to God. And when we look to God, we seek his mercy. We want God to have regard for our life. We may not understand why he does what he does, but we, we trust him. We trust in his mercy. And because we are made in God's image, 
we can then reflect his image and his mercy on the animals that are in our charge. And here's the stern warning I think we see in this Proverbs. It says, but the mercy of the wicked is cruel. And what this is saying, that if, if our stewardship over the animals that are in our care, if the mercy that we show these animals in our charge, if it is cruel, this is a clear, another clear diagnostic of the state of our heart. See, cruelty to an animal or a person is evidence of a wicked heart. It's evidence of an unregenerate heart. So cruelty is a sin that must not even be named among believers. It's not, it's not an unforgivable sin, but it is a heinous sin. And it's one that, once recognized, must be grieved and must be sincerely repented of. For, as Scripture tells us, a righteous man has regard for his animals. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the gifts of animals. That We thank you for the creation that you have given to us. And Lord, we thank you that uh, we have the responsibility and the privilege to care for animals. And Lord, I do pray that we will be the righteous man. We will have regard for the life of our animals. And Lord, we pray that you will use us and our treatment of animals to show the world what you are like. And Lord, that you will be glorified in this. We pray this all in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen.